Are you ready for God's word today? All right, so turn with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3, everybody. And we're in a series of messages that we called the Bible series, the Bible series. Um, and, and really, this is, I, I was, to be honest, um, when I prepared the series, because if you've been following along with us or you've been here, then you know I'm giving a lot of information, even history. And so about 70% of the message is kind of weighted in information, historical, et cetera. And it's kind of the last little bit that's the application. I believe all good preaching has three things, in information, inspiration, and application. And so we're going to get to those. But to be honest, when I wrote the series, what I knew was we need to be discipled. And what I knew was we need to understand things um, at, a, at a different level and truly be able to give, as the Bible says, um, it's where we get the word apolog apologetics, apologia, but it, but it means to give an answer to, to give an answer for our faith. And I think good believers, that's, that's, I mean, if we're following Jesus, not enough in this culture because we're bombarded by culture and it's coming through us, through our phones and our tablets, our computers and Instagram and TikTok and, 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 you know, all of social media and YouTube. And as I said, there's a lot of information out there and there's a lot of bad information, but I'm loving the fact that our church wants to be discipled. When I wrote the messages, I was a little bit concerned because I thought, am I going to lose them? Are they going to get bored with this content? But I've heard from so many people, even today, one of the, one of the ladies on our worship team uh, was like, Pastor, this has been my favorite series you've ever done. And I'm like, wow, okay, that's fantastic. Because I think ultimately we have this hunger and we want to know truth and we want to understand truth. I think there's a hunger in our culture. Even though our culture is very much into relativism, it's kind of a postmodern thing where truth is what you feel. But I think I think that can get waxed old pretty easily, get confusing pretty easily. I think there's a, a huge cry in the undercurrent of our culture saying, I wish somebody would just tell me the truth. Like I, I'd like to actually know what the truth is, um, especially with this uh, with the younger generation, Gen X that's that's coming now. And so so that's what we're doing and that's what we're gonna do today. So I'm gonna give you a lot of information. Um, and then we're going to get to some inspiration and application. But I think it's things that you need to understand. So we're in 2 Timothy, everybody, 2 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to start at verse 12. Um, and I can't remember what, I, what scripture I gave them, but I, I'm going to start at verse 12. I may have started y'all at 14. Y'all just do the best you can. Um, but verse 12, it says, In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, I want to give you, we've read 2 Timothy 3.16. A lot of people can quote it. It's the famous verse, every scripture is breathed out by God or God breathed or inspired by God, depending on the version. Um, but I want you to have the context, right? Because a text without a context can become a pretext and people will make it say things that it's not saying. So I want you to see the context. Verse 13, it says, while evil men and imposters while evil men and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But look what he says. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of. So he's telling Timothy, it's important that we've learned some things and we've become sure of some things. So he's saying, continue in those things because you know those from whom you learned it. In other words, it was a reliable source. And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation 
through faith in Jesus Christ. Then we get to this verse. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's what Paul is telling Timothy. Hey, you live in a world in a culture where a lot of people say things and do things, and there are people that don't have the best motives, and there's a lot of deceit going around, and some people are deceived, and some people are intentionally deceiving, intentionally deceiving other people. And here's what he's saying. If you want to keep from being deceived, this is your measuring stick. This is your measuring rod. This, this is what you stand on. This is your source. This is undebatable and without being questioned. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, this is God breathed. You know what essentially he was saying? He's saying, man's doing a lot of breathing. In other words, they're speaking out. And they're speaking out about this, that, and the other. And they have their theories and their thoughts and their truth. But he's like, you don't need to worry about the words that are man breathed. You need to worry about the words that are God breathed. And this is what you base your life on, the words that come from God, not the words that come from man. And that's what we're talking about this series. And so, um, as you know, in the series, I've kind of been taking questions, and every message is kind of the answering of a question, if you will. And uh, last week, we talked about how the Bible is inspired by God. We said, where did we get the Bible? We were talking essentially about the nature of Scripture. This week, I want to talk about the scope of of scripture. And so this is the question I'm answering this week. Do we have the right Bible? Do we have the right Bible? In other words, I'm talking about the scope of scripture, not, not the nature. And so let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we need your help today. We need your power, your anointing, your grace. We're, we need your words. So God, I ask today that you would speak and we would hear you. God, today, let us hear you. And God, thank you that the word does correct and the, dirt, the word does reprove and rebuke and instruct. God, today we ask for all of those. God, if we need to be instructed, instruct us. If we need to be rebuked, rebuke us. We, if, if someone needs to be proven, let it be proven by your word. If we need to be corrected, let us be corrected by your word today. God, we need your words in Jesus' name. And everybody said... Amen. So we're talking about the scope of Scripture. So here's, here's what we're going to talk about. We're really talking about this word canon, canon. So you went to Bible school. If you like theology, you understand canon, the canon, the Old, the Old Testament canon, the New Testament canon. When we say canon, what are we talking about? Essentially, it, it, we would say it's the norm or it's what it's measured by, or you could simply say the measuring rod, the measuring rod of Scripture, the measuring rod of, of the sacred text, if you will. And so when we're talking about the canon. There are actually two canons. There's the canon of the Old Testament, the canon of the New Testament. For us, uh, our Old Testament is 39 books and our New Testament is 27 books. It's not the same for everybody. And I'll explain all that as we go. And so we're going to talk about the canon. In other words, how do we know that we have the right books in the Bible? Because you'll hear on TikTok, Instagram, or, and we're going to talk a lot about this in a little bit, but that wonderful work of scholarly brilliance called the Da Vinci Code. Um, which is, I don't, I, I, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but I don't think there's anything accurate in the Da Vinci Code. But it talks a lot about the formation of the New Testament, and it talks about the canon, but uh, all from a fictional standpoint, none of it is accurate, but people still believe what it says. 
And, and it just might want to remind you again, just because Spirit Sister 683 has, you know, 100,000 followers and she's on Instagram, that doesn't actually mean she knows what she's talking about, nor that she's speaking accurately about those things. Are you with me? Just because it's in a movie, come on somebody, just because they wrote a book, Da Vinci Code, and made a movie, and Tom Hanks was in it, doesn't mean any of it's right. Are, are you with me? In fact, I, I remember back, I really, I, based on the movie, I don't think any of it was actually right. I mean, you know, it's good fiction, I guess, but, but none of it was actually right. But the problem is people still, still believe it. So we're talking about canon. Here's what I want you to understand because people talk about how do we know we got the right books, who decided to put the books in the Bible, who got to pick those, all of that. I'm going to talk about all that today. I'm going to give you a crash course on it. But here's what I want you to understand. And if you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, get out some pen and paper and write this down. But when it comes to the canon, so we're talking about the canonical record of Scripture, in other words, the books of the Bible, you need to write this down. They were not determined. They were discovered. Okay? They were not chosen. They were recognized. Here's what I mean by that. Through the process, uh, you know, it's really in some ways a historical process. So you say the process of time and the church and the people of God, they rec- the people of God, recognized the authority of these writings. They discovered the power of these writings. So no one person picked them. They weren't chosen. There wasn't a lottery to see if your book got in. Are you with me? They were recognized, not not selected. They were discovered, right? Not determined because a lot of culture says, well, who, who got to pick these books? They were all picked. They were all determined. Someone determined. We're going to talk about Constantine. That's one of the, the misconceptions is that he determined the books in the New Testament. It's absolutely false. Uh, we'll talk about that in a minute. But you need to understand what happened was the church fathers, the people of God recognized the inherent authority of the writings, and that is why they, were, they became sacred scripture. Are, are you with me? Just nod if you think you're with me. Okay, so let's talk about the Old Testament. So the Old Testament is written over a broad period of time. We'll say roughly 400 B, 1400 B.C. to about 430 A.D. So it starts really with the writings of Moses. Moses is technically the first writer of the Old Testament. Job's the oldest book. Moses writes the first five books, the Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, the Law, um, um, the first five books of the Bible. Moses writes those uh, around 1400 um, A.D. B.C., 1400 B.C., goes to about 430 B.C. with the conclusion are the writings of Malachi. Now, I do need to say this, and I've already alluded to it, that there is a Catholic Old Testament, an Orthodox Old Testament, and a Protestant Old Testament, which you probably have the Protestant Old Testament, unless you were raised Eastern Orthodoxy or Catholic, um, and they're not the same. And what I mean by that is, and there's a Jewish Old Testament, by the way, um, but what I mean by that is that the Catholic and the Orthodox Old Testaments include some apocryphal writings, and those were intertestament writings, like if you've heard of the book of the, the Maccabees, uh, I think the book, book of Judas, uh, Judith, Edras, uh, even Psalm 151. So there were some, some intertestament writings, um, and they were, they were included in the Catholic Old Testament and included in the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox uh, Old Testament, I'm sorry, Catholic Old Testament, Orthodox Old Testament, but not in the Protestant Old Testament. There was debate about the books, and, and here's where the Protestant Old Testament settled. They basically just ratified the Jewish Old Testament. So everything that's in the original Jewish Old Testament um, is 
is in the Protestant Old Testament, but it is arranged differently. But those 39 books are there. The reason they didn't use the intertestament writings, the Maccabees and those type of things, because a lot of them just were, were more... Um, they weren't as broad, they weren't as broadly accepted, and they spoke to very specific groups and specific uh, people and places, and they just weren't, they really weren't as accepted or used or utilized, and so uh, they finally just said, you know what, we're, we're going to go with the Jewish Old Testament, and that's going to be our Protestant Old Testament, and those 39 books are going to be it, whereas um, the Catholic Old Testament has changed through the years, and the Orthodox Old Testament has changed some through the years. When it comes to the New Testament, I'll go ahead and tell you this. Everybody has the same 27 books of the New Testament, whether it's Catholic, not, not Jews, obviously, because they don't believe the Messiah has come, so they don't practice or believe the New Testament. Uh, Orthodox Jews. Uh, Messianic Jews, those are Jews that believe that Jesus is the Messiah, so they have a, typically a Protestant uh, version essentially, and so uh, are, are the same books as the Protestant Bible. So, so Catholics, Orthodox, Protestants, everybody has the same 27 books in the New Testament, but the Old Testament books do vary um, slightly. Um, so we have these 39 books of the Old Testament written between 1400 and 430 B.C. And what we know is that there was a recognized authority about these books where, where it was presumed they were written really under, under the direction of God. They, they were written as the words of God. In fact, we can actually see it in the scriptures, like Deuteronomy 31. This is Moses writing, but verse 24, it says, so it was when Moses had completed writing the words of this law in a book, when they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord saying, this book of the law. So notice, I mean, this is the conclusion. Moses has written the first five books of the Bible, which we call the books of the law, right? And, and at the conclusion of it, look what he's saying. This book of the law, take this book of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. In other words, it's going to be there as a measuring rod. In other words, this is canon. This is the norm. This is the measuring rod. This is it, right? And so, so immediately after this is written, Moses is letting us know, hey, this is not my autobiography or my biography. This is not, this is, this is not my diary. I didn't write a blog, y'all. Like this is something divine that you hold to and keep and you measure your life by it. And I mean, this is almost... It was immediately when he's finished writing. In fact, we know that, that God technically takes Moses because of disobedience. Moses wasn't go, able to go into the promised land. So God instructs him to go up on a mountain. And then we know of Moses no more. So, I mean, essentially God took him, performed the funeral, took him to heaven, whatever. Never found Moses. And we know J Joshua takes over. And one of the first things Joshua writes, Joshua 1.8, says this book of the law. He's not talking about Moses' diary. He's not talking about a blog. He's saying this book of the law shall not not depart out of your mouth, but you'll meditate in it day and night and be careful to observe to do all that's written in it. And then will you make your way prosperous and have great success? In other words, from the beginning, Joshua is taking what we would know as the Bible, the first five books, that was all that had been written. And he's saying, hey, Israel, this is what you live by. And if you live by this, you'll prosper and succeed. And so we see that it had immediate inherent authority. In fact, Deuteronomy 18, Deuteronomy 18 tells us um, that, that there's some guidelines for determining if, if something is Scripture. And Deuteronomy 18 also tells us there will be more writings as prophets from God 
write the words of God. And so not only do we have the rise of Moses immediately being authoritative, but we have Moses telling us God's not finished talking yet. And when someone says that they're, they're talking for God or writing for God, here is how you determine and measure if you're writing or talking for God. So then the question is, well, when, you know, so, so the new, the Old Testament canon then is opened then essentially about 1400 um, BC. When is it closed? Well, what we know is by the time Jesus comes on the scene, um, Jesus, I think, quotes 20 four Old Testament books. I think uh, the New Testament writers quote 32 or 34 of the Old Testament books. But the point is, Jesus quotes them. So, you know, just say his ministry started for simple math around 30 AD. His ministry starts and he begins immediately quoting scripture from the Old Testament. In fact, all the scripture, anytime Jesus is talking about the word of God will stand or our scripture or whatever, he's quoting the Old Testament. But what we know is that the canon was closed. There was no longer any books being added to the Old Testament. It was complete. And we know that because Jesus talks about it as though it was completed and no one rebutted him or no one objected to that, it was widely accepted that the canon of the Old Testament had been completed. In fact, Josephus, who is a first, first history um, Roman historian, he concludes that, that really the canon of the Old Testament was concluded around 400 uh, B.C. And so, so the Old Testament then becomes closed, if you will. It's th those 39 books are written, and we have the Old Testament, um, right? We know this because the um, Dead Sea Scrolls even kind of confirmed this, right? Um, and so then we get to the New Testament. Now, the New Testament, where there's a lot of debate about the New Testament, a lot of argument about the New Testament. The New Testament is written over 50 years from 40 A.D. to 90 A.D. So some of the first writings of the New Testament are actually the writings of Paul. Um, and then it ends with more of the writings of John. But again, in the New Testament, there was a recognition of inherent authority. I mean, this is what Paul, Paul wrote this, uh, and we'll come back to this in a minute, but just so you kind of get it on your dashboard here, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing because when you receive, look at this, this is what Paul says, when you receive the word of God which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. That's what Paul... And then to the Corinthians, Paul wrote this, or did the word of God come originally from you or was it only that it reached? Or was it you only that it reached? If anyone thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. So, so there was already this inherent authority in these writings of the New Testament but where the debate comes about, and it is true, there was a historical selection process. In other words, you know, history is happening, life is happening, Jesus is living, miracles are happening, Jesus is crucified and, and buried, and then he is raised again, and, and then he appears to people for 40 days, and then 50 days after the resurrection, you get to the day of Pentecost, which we see in, in the book of Acts. So you have this book of Acts, which is kind of the history in a lot of ways, of, of this primitive New Testament first century church. And then you have all of Paul's epistles and his letters and you have these gospels and it's all just kind of happening real time, if you will. And But as, as it is happening, there is a recognition in these writings that these writings are sacred, are divine, are inspired, but there's still a process of, remember, recognizing and discovering that, not choosing or determining that. Are you with me? 
So there is a historical selection process. So how did they decide? Well, here's, here's how they decided. There was essentially three criteria or a threefold test to measure writings against to say, should this be recognized as sacred scripture or should it not? Okay, so let me give you the test just so you know. Number one um, was apostolic origin. Apostolic origin, and this kind of has two categories under this apostolic origin. Um, the first would be, was it written by an apostle, essentially who had firsthand, uh, a firsthand encounter or knowledge of Jesus, right? So that's what they were really looking for. So um, apostolic origin. So for instance, no one really debated the book of Romans because we know Paul writes it. It's very clear that Paul writes it. We also know it's very clear that Paul had an encounter face-to-face with Jesus on the road to Damascus. As he is given apostleship, right? Or, or one of the super apostles even stated, right? So, so here we have Paul, um, and he writes the book of Romans. No one debated that. No one's like, Romans shouldn't be in the Bible. No, they're like, no, this is, this is sacred. This, there's something about this, right? Um, but when you get to... Um, well, by the way, it'd be the same with the Gospel of Matthew and the same with the Gospel of John. They were followers of Jesus' disciples, and they wrote the Gospel, and everybody just accepted uh, that that was that. But what about when we talk about the Gospel of Luke or the Gospel of Mark? Because Luke and Mark were not of the Twelve. They were not technically apostles. But what we know, and the reason, by the way, it was never debated whether those two, whether Luke or Mark should be a part of the Gospel, it was very much accepted by everyone broadly that they were to be included in the canon of the New Testament their gospel account because, and here's why, um, it's the second category. In other words, it was written by apostolic sanction, right? So if an apostle wrote it, that's one thing. But if an apostle has sanctioned it, that also was considered. And what we know is that Mark wrote for Peter and Mark gets all of his information from Peter. And what we know is Luke traveled with Paul and Luke was an associate of Paul and Luke gets all of his information from Paul. And so because of that, it was never debated if Mark or Luke should be included as gospels in the New Testament because everyone understood they were sanctioned by apostles, even if technically Mark and Luke were not apostles. Are you tracking with me? So number one is this apostolic origin. Number two was reception by the primitive church or the first century church. In other words, did the early church use it, quote it, speak from it? Like this is like, did they use it as though it was something more than a blog post? Are you, are you with me? Um, for instance, like uh, Galatians, we know, was a circular letter. It was written to probably six churches, actually, in Asia Minor. Many theologians believe Ephesians was also a circular letter just because the writing style and the fact that many times when Paul was writing like to the Corinthians or to a specific church or to a specific person, he would greet that person a certain way and he'd say, also remember Bob, you know, like I'm writing, man, I'm writing to, you know, the, the Corinthian church and hey, everybody at Corinthians, great to see. And also, hey, would you greet Bob and, Bob and Joni? Would you tell them it's great to see them? You know, there would be these personal inflections in there that you don't so much see in the book of Ephesians. And so many people believe Ephesians also was a circular letter that was not written just to a church, but the universal church. The point is, it's being written to, the, to what we would call the universal body of Christ, not just a person and not just a particular place. And so then it was accepted and it was quoted. Now, you need to know this because this is good information, but we actually... In, and I'm making a point with this because you can actually reconstruct the entire Greek New Testament. And this is not me. This is a theologian and biblical scholar. But they have, they've done this. You can actually reconstruct the entire Greek New Testament 
by using writings outside of the Bible. In other words, these writings of sermons and messages and letters from the primitive church, they quoted the New Testament so much and cited it so much that every line, I think, except four or five words, every line of the New Testament can be validated and you can actually reconstruct the New Testament with writings outside the New Testament. It was so widely circulated, written, cited, and quoted. You also need to know, this is just sidebar, we have more copies of the Greek New Testament than any other document in antiquity. Because some people say, well, you know, it's just, you know, we don't have a lot of copies. Over 20-something thousand copies of the Greek New Testament. It's a lot more than any of the other writings in antiquity that, we, that are in our history books or that we study or that we talk about. But the point is this, it was, it was accepted and received by the church as something divine. And so, so we have apostolic origin and then acceptance by the primitive church. And then here's the next one, measuring against the core. Now, let me explain what I mean by that, measuring against the core. What is not widely talked about that is actually completely accurate is about 10 years after the, the last writing of the New Testament, 10 to 15 years. So we know John is writing, it's around 80, 90. Um, within 15 years, we have a working New Testament that was about 21 books out of the 27. Um, and it was widely used and accepted and circulated as Scripture, as the New Testament. It was a core of Scripture. Um, it, you know, it had the four gospels, it had 13 letters of epistle, it had first Peter, had first John, had, uh, you know, Romans, Hebrews, Revelation, you know, all of that. And it was accepted as scripture. Uh, really the, the books that, that were eventually added in, uh, where there was debate, um, was like second Peter because it looked, the writing style looked different, uh, even though the, the themes and all were accurate, um, and, and, and unified. Um, and then 2nd, 3rd John, uh, Jude, and sometimes James, those, those were more debated. But here's what I want you to understand. Those are all very small books, and that was why they were debated. They were small books. They were a little more specific, um, and that was why they were debated. But what you need to understand, because a lot of people think, well, you know, here, here's what is kind of portrayed in culture, um, that, that these men were writing and 500 years after they finished writing, somebody said, man, this is good writing. We ought to make it the Bible. And what you need to understand, that's not what happened. W within 15 years of the last, what we know is the last New Testament writing, the, the last writing of what's in our New Testament, within 15 years, there's about 21 books of a working New Testament that was accepted and listed by the early church and the primitive church. And the way the other six books or so were brought in is they were measured against that core and they had to be consistent with what had already been accepted. And the reason some other books were left out is because they were not consistent. And when it came to this test, they either didn't have apostolic authority or they weren't accepted by the primitive church or they were not congruent with the core which had been in use for some time. Are you with me? So that's how the New Testament was canonized. That's how Scripture was selected for that. Now, let me give you, this is kind of fun, four misconceptions, everybody. We're going to do this pretty fast. Four misconceptions um, about how we got the Bible, the canon, etc. And the first one is this. Early Christians disagreed widely with the books of the canon, all right? So this is one, that, and, and here's what they'll, they'll throw out a number, 2,000. There's like 2,000 books that should have been included right, or, or could have been candidates 
for inclusion in the New Testament. And it's actually erroneous, absolutely uh, erroneous. It's, it's not true at all. Um, here's, here's what, there, there are a lot of books that, that sound like they could be in the Bible. Like people, I've been asked lately about uh, the Gospel of Thomas and the Gospel of Peter. Um, and I don't know if you've read those, but there's some wacky stuff in there, y'all. Like the Gospel of Thomas pretty much says that Jesus is going to lead everybody and all the women into becoming men because unless you become a man, you can't enter into the kingdom of God. I mean, now somebody in our culture today probably love that to be in the Bible, but it's not in the Bible, um, right? The, the Gospel of Peter talks about even though we know Peter wasn't there when Jesus came out of the tomb, it's very clear from the Gospels that we have, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, right? But yet the Gospel of Peter describes Peter being there and Jesus coming out of the tomb and then Jesus starts getting bigger and then the cross comes out of the tomb and then the cross starts getting bigger. It's some wacky stuff, y'all. I mean, it's some stuff you, you, you know, I'm just going to say it was probably written in Colorado. That's all I'm going to say. All right. I'm going to say that, right? It's written in Colorado over a bag of Cheetos. That's all I'm going to say. All right. But here's what you need to understand is the gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Peter written in the second century. You understand Thomas and Peter were martyred in the first century. So how did they all of a sudden write the gospel? And we know when they were written, we can date the writings it's not like they discovered it. No, we know when it was written, and we know it was written in the second century. But here's what happened. The Gnostics, right? The Gnostics wrote a lot of books and a lot of fraudulent books, and if you wanted your book circulated, the best thing you could do was put a famous name on it, right? Like if I want to write a book today and sell some copies, I might write a book and put Bishop T.D. Jakes, right? Now, today I'd be sued, and today the bishop would be upset. And today the bishop probably come to law and be saying, get ready, get ready, get ready. You know, I'm going to come straighten you out, right? So, so you don't do that. But I'm saying the, the Gnostics wrote tons of books. None of them were ever in any way even debated among as if, as if they should be in Scripture. And what you need to understand, the only four, the, well, the only first century gospels that we have are the four in your New Testament. And, the, and every writing that's in the New Testament was written in the first century, right? The, the only writing, I mean, there were, there were really three that were strongly considered as becoming part of the New Testament. Um, the, the Shepherd of Hermes, the Didache, and uh, the first, uh, book of First Clement. Clement. Um, those three were debated about being added, and the only one of those that was a first century writing was First Clement. Um, and the reason those were not included is because they didn't have apostolic authority. The writers themselves seemed to understand they were writing post, you know, kind of like post the post apostles, if you will, or post apostolically. And so they kind of, they, they quoted the apostles. They quoted other, uh, other books of the New Testament. But it seemed clear to them that they didn't have of themselves and from themselves any apostolic authority, firsthand account with Jesus or anything like that. And so while it, even though some of their messaging is very congruent with our New Testament, et cetera, because there was a lack of authority, because they had not been accepted by the primitive church, then for those two reasons, they said, you know what, this is not, this is not Scripture. This is not scripture. Good writing, maybe, but but not scripture. And so you have to understand that that really um, the debate about which books should be in the New Testament was not a huge debate in a lot of cases, and there certainly wasn't two thousand candidates for books to be for inclusion in the New Testament. So the early Christians did not uh, disagree widely 
on the canon. Here's the second thing. Apocryphal books were just as important, if not more important, than canonical books. So the apocryphal books, we talked about like the Maccabees and those, those type. It's the intertestamental books. And some will say, well, they were just as popular. But it's not, and we can prove it in history, because they weren't quoted and they weren't cited. So the way you determine the popularity of an ancient book was how often was it quoted and cited. Remember, we can rebuild, essentially, reconstruct the entire Greek New Testament with writings outside of the Bible because it was quoted and cited so much. The apocryphal books were not quoted. They were not uh, cited as much, which is a large reason why they're not in the Protestant Old Testament. Are, are you with me? Are you tracking? All right, and then the, the fourth misconception, this is Da Vinci Code. This one's so much fun. But uh, this one is, Constantine selected the New Testament canon at the Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. And it sounds really good because there's some factual things about it. There was, Constantine's real, right? There was a Council of Nicaea in A.D. 325. Those things sound very accurate. And when it comes to the Da Vinci Code, it kind of makes it look like Constantine pulled everybody together and decided, okay, I'm going to tell y'all which books are going to be in the New Testament. Except if you study real history, then you know that the Council of Nicaea, they never even discussed the canon or what books should be in the Bible. And you understand Constantine didn't decide anything at the Council of Nicaea. He wanted the Council of Nicaea because there was heretical teaching and a schism or division in the church. And he wanted the church to be unified because it made his empire stronger. So he said, you bishops get together and decide what we're going to do. And the whole Council of Nicaea was simply about the divinity of Jesus and how do we correctly articulate the divinity of Jesus. The council where we see a list of New Testament books, the canon, is actually um, Hippo, Hipporegius' Council of Carthage in A.D. 398. And that's where we have a list of the 27 books of the New Testament. But you need to understand the books of the New Testament were long decided before then. The reason that they were called up and, and the, the church fathers say, we have to say, assuredly, on record, these are the 27 books, was in a response to a man named Marcion who was a heretic. He had lived a couple hundred years earlier, but his followers still existed. They were disseminating his teaching. And Marcion's big thing was he said the Old Testament God was a lesser deity. He wasn't really God. Jesus was the real God. So he went to the New Testament. He did away with the Old Testament, then went to the New Testament and pulled out any book or reference to Jesus being unified with God, being the Son of God, being at one with God. And so he, he created this his own canon, if you will, which was a very small collection of the Scriptures where he had edited and removed any connection between Jesus and God. And that was why the church fathers said, okay, we thought everybody understood what the New Testament was. Obviously, there's some doubt, but these are the 27 books of the New Testament. But again, we had a working core of the New Testament you know, what would that be, like 300 years, almost 300 years before? And people say, why did, the, why did it take so long to have all these councils? Well, remember, Christians were persecuted and burned and killed and, uh, until Constantine. Constantine made Christianity legal. Until then, it was illegal. Are you with me? So in other words, they couldn't have councils because they'd all be arrested and killed. So it wasn't until Constantine comes on the scene and says, okay, Christianity 
can be uh, legalized, essentially, and then the church fathers could actually get together and discuss issues of the church. By the way, we still do this today. I mean, there's there was a council in 1970, 1980 about the authority of Scripture. There's still councils that are going on today where theologians get together and talk about the issues of Scripture and those type of things, how to articulate them, what's right and wrong and correct and all that. So you just have to understand the reason we don't see councils until like 8300 and so is because, you know, they didn't want to be... Christians didn't want to be killed, you know, or, or, or arrested. Remember, I mean, for example, most of you probably know this, but at 4th of July, has anyone ever bought a Roman candle? Yeah. Do you know what a, the first Roman candle was? It was when Nero was in charge. Um, so this is going back to the first century. And Nero, if you were a Christian, he arrested you, dipped you in tar and pitch, hung you on a pole while you're alive, and then lit you on fire. And he would use the bodies of Christians to light his parties in his gardens, and he dubbed them Roman candles. So they were so greatly persecuted, you couldn't get together and have a council, right? So that's why we don't see the councils until late. But that doesn't mean the New Testament didn't exist. Again, it wasn't like 500 years after the writing of the New Testament, some men got together and said, man, these writings are good. We ought to make a Bible out of them. That's not, that's not at all what happened. Are you with me? All right, so three things. Here's our three points. That was all the introduction, y'all. I'm out of breath. You're tired. That was the introduction. Three things. Let's write these down. Number one, number one, the Bible is complete. You need to understand this, that, that, that when we're looking at what God has done, we talked last week about how God superintended the words of this book using human hands. But when we look at history and what God has done, not only to give us his words, but to preserve them, and then to make sure we have the right words, then we can rest assured that we have the completed word of God. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because we can't go down the road of maybe there's something in here that shouldn't be in here. Maybe there's something out there that should be in here. You know, the, the book of Enoch quotes the book of Jude, so maybe it should be scripture. No, 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 no. God, the work God has done through history really through the process of about 1,500 years to show us and give us what we know as Scripture is incredible. And the way he's preserved it is unfathomable. And with that, we need to say, okay, this is the Bible. This is complete. This is, this is, this is God's revelation. In fact, we don't add to it and we don't take from it. Let me give you an Old Testament and a New Testament reference about adding and taking from Scripture because I'm balanced. Here we go, Deuteronomy 4.2. Do not add to what I command you and do not subtract from it, but keep the commands of the Lord your God that I give. So what God said, don't add to it. Don't take from it. Revelation 22.18. Now this was a little more intense. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of the scroll, if anyone adds anything to them, God will add to that person the plagues described in this scroll. And if anyone takes away the words from this scroll of prophecy, God will take away from that person any share in the tree of life in the holy city, which are, which are described in this scroll. Here's what God is saying emphatically. This is my word. Don't take from it and don't add to it. Just accept it. Come on, somebody. The B-I-B-L-E. That's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God. The B-I-B-L-E. Some of y'all went to children's church where I went to children's church. Are you with me? So we don't take from it and we don't add to it. We accept. 
This is the word of God. This is the revelation. Look at this. This is what Paul says. God breathed, and this is what we got. This is not a, just another book. It's not a book that claims to be a sacred writing because there are others. No, this book came from the very breath of God, and it, God has talked to us. People say, well, I can't hear God. You'll never hear God with this closed. Don't tell me you can't hear God if your Bible's not open because God has spoken. And by the way, he's not gonna say anything today that can't be validated, verified, and given credibility and credence based on this word. He's not changing his opinions today. Not changing his mind today. Are you with me? God has spoken. Here's number two then the Bible is the word of God. It is God's words. It is God's breath, right? All scripture is breathed out by God. In other words, this is the word of God. What does that mean? That means that anything this word affirms, God affirms. There is no delineation between what God wants and God says and what this word wants and what this word says. Are you with me? If this word says it, God said it. And if this word doesn't say it, God didn't say it. Are you with me? If it affirms it, God affirms it. If it repudiates it, God repudiates it. Are you with me? Because I'm about to say something. I said some things last week that offended people, and I thought what a shame it'd be to let you out of here today without offending some people. Because I was asked, does the Bible speak to the gender crisis? And to me, it's a crisis. We don't know what restroom to use. There are now 70-something different genders. We're trying to pick our pronouns. Does God speak to that? And I said, absolutely. The Word of God speaks to it. In fact, God speaks to the issue of gender very early in the book of Genesis because the book of Genesis said God created them male and female. The book, all the way through it, by the way, God never changed his mind. All the way through this book, you will only find male and female. And the male is based on male biology, and the female is based on female biology, meaning the chromosomes. Are you with me? X and Y chromosomes is science. I could also say anatomy. And there is no place where God ever affirmed someone who had male anatomy deciding they were female and there's no place where God ever confirmed or affirmed a person with female anatomy that decided they were going to identify as something else. And so what the Bible affirms, God affirms. And I know people are saying, but I don't feel. The Bible is not a book about what we feel. A Bible is a book about what God says. Are you with me? And I understand I've counseled with people that have same-sex attraction. I've counseled with people that have gender dysphoria. I understand it exists. But you need to understand that just because I feel a certain way does not make it true. Right? Just because culture explains some things and argues some things do not make them right. What the Bible speaks to, and by the way, and I know this is, let me just go a step farther. Everybody brace yourself. There's only one type of marriage the Bible affirms. And it was affirmed by God in Genesis, and it was affirmed by Jesus in Matthew. For this reason, a man 
will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And the two of them will become one flesh. It's the only marriage that God affirms. I, it, I'm not talking today about culture because I don't know if you know this. Our culture is extraordinarily confounded and confused. And do you know why we're confounded and confused? Because we've forgotten God gave us his words to navigate life by and that this is truth. Are you with me? And so what the Bible affirms, God affirms. What it denounces, God denounces because this is the actual Word of God. So what does that mean? It means, number one, I accept its truth. In other words, for this to do me any good, I've got to accept it. It is God's truth. Jesus says, sanctify them by your truth. Oh God, your word, oh God, is truth. So for this to work for me, I've got to say this is truth, and anything outside of this is up for debate and question, but nothing inside of this is up for debate and question. Are you with me? And then, if I accept it as truth, that means then... Essentially, um, I practice it as though it's indispensable. This is not an option. This is not something I might choose to do or not choose to do. It's something I could think about or consider. Come on. They weren't the ten considerations, everybody. Right? Ten thoughts you might consider if you've got some time. That's not what that was. No, these are the commands of the Lord. And just as Joshua said, if we'll be careful to, to, to learn these and live by them, this is how you prosper and have success. But this is the command of the Lord, and this is truth. And if it's truth, then this is what I practice. This is how I live. Are you with me? I kind of feel Pentecostal with my Bible up here. I'm telling you what, somebody throw a hanky at me, I'd feel at home. You know what I'm saying? And then here's the number three, and this kind of takes us to next week, number three. Then the Bible must be studied. Think about it. If it's complete and it's the Word of God, what, what do we do? Well, we must study. The Bible needs to be studied. Please note that the point is not the Bible should be read. The Bible, we should, we must study. The Bible must be studied. I think everyone here knows the difference between reading and studying. Because we all went to school somewhere. Come on, somebody. This is, this is what Paul told Timothy. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. Now, that word do your best in the old King James was study to show thyself approved. And I put the thy in there because I'm just feeling spunky today. But he says, study to show yourself approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Here's what Paul's saying. You better study the Word of God. You need to handle the Word of God well. Why? You, you know, the Bible says this is a sword. Sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? If you don't handle a sword well, you'll kill something that needs to live or you'll cut your own arm off. Are you with me? And he's saying you need to handle well the Word of God. Here's, here's two reasons why you need to study the Word and then we'll be finished. Number one, you need to study the Word because you live by it. Now, I could say that one of two ways. You should live by it or you do live by it, meaning it is the source of life. Those words are life. My words are life. That's, I mean, that's what Jesus said. So, so you live by it. We are sustained by the word of God. Man doesn't live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, right? So we live by the word of God. So number one, you live by it. You'll be alive by it, meaning if I practice it, I live 
If I do it, I live. And if I don't, I don't. So we live by the word of God and the way that we live is by the word of God. And if we want to prosper and we want to have success and we want to be well, if we want to do what God's called us to do, if we want to fulfill our purpose and our calling, if we want success in our relationships, if we want success in our finances, if we want success in our lives at all, we have the word of life, which is the word of God. So we live by it, but I can't live by it if I don't know it. And I can't do it if I don't know it and if I don't understand it. And so I study it so I can live by it. Here's the second thing. I study it, and this one's not as much fun, but we need to talk about it. You're like, was any of this fun? Yeah, it was. Put a smile on your face. We're having a great time. (laughs) But here's the second thing. I will be judged by it. So I'll live by it. But I'll be judged by it. Here's what Jesus said, John 12, 48. There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. The very words I have spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. And I know, this, I know that his command leads to eternal life. So whatever I say, is just what the Father has told me. Here's what he's saying. You're going to be judged. I don't know about y'all, but when I was in college, you know, there are kind of two types of professors. You know, they're, they're the professors that, that really, they kind of teach based on the exam. And, and they kind of teach you what's going to be on the exam. And when you get to the exam, you're like, oh, yeah. I mean, they kind of told me in a way this was going to be on the exam. They kind of let me know. I always liked those professors because when I was studying for that exam, I had a really good idea of what was going to be actually on the test. And then there was this other group of professors, and, and they were maybe more a little philosophical or, or more intellectual maybe as, as they approached life and things. And they wanted you to have a well-rounded understanding, but they wouldn't give you any hint about what was going to be on the test. And it was like you had to read the whole textbook and know the whole thing. And I can't remember how many times I'd walk into a test and say, man, I wish I'd have known. Because you kind of had to gamble, you know, because like, I don't know about you, but, you know, I'd have an 8 a.m. test, so I'd start studying at 7.53. And, and uh, come on, don't act like you didn't do that. Cramming, you know, because we were in the dorms. We were up late doing stupid stuff and then finally went to bed at 3 and got up at 7, and now we're cramming for that 8 a.m. test. Come on, does anybody live like that? Thank you. You are my people. And then I would get in there and I'd take a gamble. I bet this is going to be it, or I bet this is going to be it, right? And I'd get in there like, oh, I wish I had known this was going to be on the test because I would have studied this. Because it was on the test, but I didn't know. So I studied that, and that ain't on the test. And here's what I want you to understand. There's going to be a test. But your loving, gracious, heavenly Father has made sure you have everything that's on it. This life is going to test you. You're going to be tested between now and the day you meet Jesus. And then you're going to be judged by the test you take. And you're going to be judged by the content of this, of this book. And here's what God is so wonderful and so kind and so loving. He's made sure that there's not going to be one thing on the test that he didn't warn you about in advance. He's made sure you're not going to face one thing in this life that he doesn't speak to already. You're never going to have a situation. You're never going to have an encounter. You're never going to have a happening in your life that the word of God hasn't 
already, that God himself hasn't already spoken about. And he is so loving and so kind. He wants you to pass with flying colors. He wants you to prosper and have good success. So he has given you his notes, everybody. And he's made sure that everything that's going to be tested, he's already spoken to. And anything you're going to be judged on, he's already explained to you. And all we have to do is open it up and say, Holy Spirit, today speak as I read the Word of God. I'm telling you right now, do we have the right Bible? We do. We have the right Bible, and it is God's Word, and it is God's breath, and it will keep you from deceit, and it will make your way prosperous and give you good success. Amen. Come on, somebody, praise God with me today for His Word. Why don't you stand with me? I'm going to ask all of our prayer team to come today. We end all of our worship experiences with a time of prayer. I know we're a little bit long. That's my fault, but it was a good topic, everybody. So we're going to pray and then make sure you get your kids as quickly as you can for the next group. But let's bow our heads as the prayer team comes. And I just want to remind you, when we're finished praying today, if you need prayer, we're here to pray with you. And if you're online and you'd like prayer, you can text my pathway prayer to 94,000 and someone will pray with you. But let's bow our heads and take just a moment in the presence of God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have spoken to us. Thank you that you didn't leave us as orphans. But you've given us not only your Holy Spirit, but you've given us your very words. God, help us to study to show ourselves approved, rightly handling the word of truth. God, so that we can prosper and have good success. Would you take a moment with your head bowed? We do this every week, but I love to do this. Would, would you take a moment and ask God what he is saying to you today? Just heads bowed, no one moving around. Just right there where you're at, just say, God, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me today? And it may be something from the message. It may be something different. We just want to make sure God has an opportunity to talk to everybody because we believe God still talks. God, I pray you'd speak to everyone today a word from you. And while our heads are bowed and no one's looking around, and we're just listening for the Lord, I, I want to take a moment. If there's someone in this room and you really need a relationship with God, and you know you do, you feel that in your heart, you feel that inside. But as we're, we're talking here, you need to be forgiven. You need a relationship. We're not asking you if you have a religious association or denominational affiliation. I'm asking, do you have a relationship with Jesus? And if you want a relationship with Jesus, if you want to be forgiven, if you want to be a new creation, I'd love to pray with you. No one's looking around, but I'm going to ask you when I count to three, just slip your hand up. It's, you're, you're, you're acknowledging that to God, not to me. It's not for me, but you're letting God know here I am. And if that's you, I want to pray for you. So no one moving just yet. If that's you and you're like, I need, I need to be forgiven. I need a relationship with God, Pastor. That is me. I want you to lift your hand. Ready? One, two, three. Just shoot it up. Yeah, God bless you. Thank you. Awesome. Awesome. If you lifted your hand, the Bible says that this is what we need to do. We need to believe in our heart that Jesus was raised from the dead by God, that Jesus is Lord, and confess with our mouth. So that's what we're going to do. We call it a prayer, but essentially we're saying we believe and we're going to give confession to it. And so if, you, if that's you or you're online and, and that's what you're wanting to do with your heads bowed, no one's looking around, you can use your own words. 
but I'll give you an example and you're welcome to use mine. But we're just giving a voice to our faith. So it'd be something like this. God, I believe in you and I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he was raised from the dead. I believe that he died and rose again for me, for my sin, for my shortcomings. And God, I believe today that I can be forgiven. I ask you to forgive me, to make me a new creation, to give me eternal life, and to help me follow you the rest of my life. You are my Lord and my Savior in Jesus' name. And God, I just pray as they pray that prayer or their version of it, God, that you would reveal yourself to them, speak to them, help them, God, to follow you for the rest of their lives. God, help us all to follow you and to study your word. Thank you that we have the right Bible. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. Come on, can you give Jesus praise today? Hey, Pastor Marty here from Pathway Church. I just want to say thank you for joining us. And I want to encourage you to get connected and stay connected. And there's several ways you can do that. Number one, you can download the Pathway app and we are all the time offering resources and information on that app for you. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you do, make sure you click the bell so that you never miss any life-giving and life-changing content as we add it to the channel. And then also, uh, make sure you follow us on social media, on Instagram, on Facebook. Look, our hope and heart for you is that you walk in the purpose for which God made and created and redeemed you for. We love to connect people to purpose. We thank you for giving us this opportunity. And if you're ever in Longview or you are in Longview, I'd love to invite you to join us in person each weekend. Listen, I pray God's best for your life. I believe if you follow Jesus, your best is ahead.